some estimates are that we have about 10,000 years of human history between fossil records and archaeological findings and things like that. Some say a little less, some say a whole lot more, but we can, we can definitely say that it's 10,000 years would be round about that amount of time. And that's just the start of eternity. Kind of puts things in perspective, doesn't it? Look with me at Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. We are talking about uh, this book of Hebrews, and we don't know who wrote it. Uh, there's a bunch of theories. I haven't really gotten into some of the theories on Sunday morning just because uh, we, we don't know who wrote it. So, so some of the, some of the uh, uh, theorizing and, and trying to figure it out, it really all boils down to nothing anyway, but we don't exactly know who wrote Hebrews. What we do know, though, is that he is writing to a group of people who are very familiar with a Jewish mindset. These are most likely Jews who have either just converted to Christianity or that he's trying to get to convert to Christianity. And so you have these folks that have this Jewish sort of mindset in them. And when he's writing to them, one of the things that he wants to do is he wants to make sure that they are putting, that he, they put Christ in the proper place. That they are not just putting Christ along with the angels, along with Moses, along with the temple, along with all these other things that God has used in the past, along with the prophets through whom God has spoken in the past. He wants to show that Christ is exalted above all of them. Because when you see the exalted Lord Jesus Christ over all, then you can get the proper perspective on everything else. And so he wants to show this exalted Christ. And so he's been showing us how Christ is exalted above the angels. One of the interesting ways that Christ becomes exalted, though, is a little counterintuitive. I want you to picture a young guy, maybe, I don't know, maybe 10th or 11th grade, something like that. Somewhere in there. I can't remember exactly where it was. A young man in Miss Davis's math class. I know it was Miss Davis because she taught both subjects. So I don't remember which subject it was, but it was the same teacher. And she introduces this concept called vectors. Now, um, vectors, vectors are kind of an easy thing once you get to know them, but it's kind of hard to picture what they are before you get to know them. And so she starts with this definition of vectors, that a vector is just something that has uh, both direction and magnitude. Now, perfectly clear, right? <laughs> what are you talking about? That's what this young man, uh, me, uh, thought when she's giving that definition. I, I, okay, I understand those words, but I have no clue what you're talking about. And as we, the class went along and she began to show some examples, we began to work through some things, and she began to explain that things like wind is a vector. You know, wind. So if you, you, hear a, you hear someone giving a forecast and they say that winds are out of the southeast at 13 knots, for those of us not like Malcolm that don't have our sea legs, that's about 15 miles an hour. Malcolm, you knew 13 knots though, didn't you? Yeah, brought back some memories, I'm sure. When, when we hear things like that, Direction, out of the southeast. Magnitude, 15 miles an hour, 13 knots. You got not only where is it going, but how hard is it blowing, right? Wind is a vector. Okay, that makes a little more sense now. I can kind of, okay, that gives me something I can kind of grab a hold to. I, I, I kind of understand a little bit better now. 
We worked through some examples and we did some math and, and she showed us how to do certain things and, and they began to make more and more sense as she, as it went, as she went along, as, as the class progressed. Sometimes when you're reading the scripture, especially in the epistles, you find that the text does just what a math teacher does. It introduces the concept. It gives you the big idea right up front and then they explain it. They argue it. They, they take you through the process so that by the end, you understand what they told you at the beginning. That's exactly what the author of Hebrews does in this passage. In verse 10, he gives us a lesson, and then the rest of the passage, he expounds on that lesson. He proves it. He brings it to life. Here, let's look at the lesson that he has to teach us, this teacher who wrote Hebrews. But as we do, let's first stand and read his word. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 18. And we don't know who penned the words, but we do know that it's God who authored the text. And this being God's word will change you in your life if you'll just pay attention to it. For it is fitting, it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For, sorry, for there, because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted, being tempted. Pray with me. Father, this is your word. Help us learn and apply this word. Thank you for your son. May he be exalted in us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Y'all have a seat. This, this uh, uh, writer of Hebrews, like a teacher, is gonna introduce a topic and then he's going to expound on it so that we understand it. The topic, the lesson that he wants to teach us is that Jesus Christ is exalted because he suffered. That may seem kind of counterintuitive to us. It kind of looks like vectors to a 10th or 11th grade me, right? You know, uh, you kind of say that and it seems a little counterintuitive. Uh, it's, it's, it might be a little bit confusing to us. The idea that suffering leads to exalting, that math just doesn't seem to work, does it? But let's hear the author out. He makes the point in verse 10. For it was fitting that he, from whom, for whom, excuse me, and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their, their salvation perfect through suffering. There's a lot to unpack in this verse, but there's basically two main streams of thought. First, that Jesus' suffering leads to his exaltation. And then second, that it's a proper thing for God to do it this way. Now let's deal with the second one first. Okay, you ready? We're gonna get deep into theology here. 
You ready? God is God. He can do whatever he wants. Okay, now that we've made that clear, let's move on to the other part. <laughs> we sometimes have such hubris to think that we, ought, that we know better than God, that, we should, that, that God should do things the way that we see fit. I can't follow a God who would do that or who would allow that to happen or who would command someone to act that way. We talk as though God ought to do what we see is fitting for him. But the reality is God is God. He's the one that determines what's good. He's the one that determines what's appropriate, what's fitting for him to do. So because God did it, it's fitting for him to do it. Okay? Make sense? Anybody need me to go further into that? Because I will gladly spend the whole morning talking about that. Okay, good. Let's, let's move on to the other point. This idea of Christ being exalted in suffering. He says it interestingly. He says, and without going too much in a, on a rabbit chase here, he says, in bringing many sons to glory, this one son is going to bring many sons to glory. There's a beautiful picture in that. One, one man, Adam, screwed it all up. So this one man, Christ, is going to make it all right. It's a beautiful picture of how, uh, think about the shepherd and the wandering sheep. And he goes and he brings that sheep back home, right? God takes all of us wandering sheep that we are, thick-headed sometimes, deep in sin sometimes. I know because I are one, okay? Especially the thick-headed part. That's why Carrie's laughing. He takes us wandering about all over the place and he brings us back home. He does it through Jesus Christ. In bringing many sons to glory, that he should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. This word founder, uh, uh, perhaps there's a couple of other words that you might use. Author is sometimes used. I like the word pioneer. You think of someone like Davy Crockett or Lewis and Clark. And they are, they are exploring land that, that other people hadn't seen before. And they're, they're mapping it out and they're showing the way and they're, and they're pioneering the way so that we can follow in their steps. That's the picture of Christ with the salvation that he gives us. He, he makes a way to God that we don't have before and now we're able to walk behind him in his steps and come before the throne of grace. And this word perfect, We'll talk a little bit about it later. But for right now, this is not perfect as in he was imperfect before. This is a perfect like a complete or possibly even fulfilled, qualified. We'll talk more about that later. So put that in the back burner and let that simmer for a while. All right. So how's he going to make this lesson? How's he going to make it make sense that Jesus Christ is perfected through suffering, that he is exalted through suffering? How's he going to do that? Well, the first thing, uh, he, he teaches us uh, this in a couple of different ways, four ways that I find in particular. The first, Christ's suffering exalts him as our companion. See, when Christ suffers, it makes him a companion to us. Look in verse 11. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. Now, we know who that source is. That source is God the Father, right? We have one source. So Jesus is the son of God. We, by faith in Christ, have become sons and daughters of God as well. All the same father, right? Okay, with me so far? Now he's going to show it. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. Verse 12, 
saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. He's kind of, uh, uh, he's actually quoting from Psalm chapter 22. Psalm 22. I know that psalm. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. Wait a minute, Psalm 22. Some, some of y'all recognize your Bible. Like, like you kind of know your way around the Bible. Do you, y'all know where Psalm 22 appears, don't you? No? I, I bet you know the first verse. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the psalm that Jesus quotes on the cross. <laughs> Savannah just read Psalm 23. Beautiful psalm. Beautiful girl too, but that, uh, maybe I'm a little biased there. But a beautiful psalm. Psalm 22 isn't as beautiful, is it? I wonder if David knew just how much this psalm would reflect the Messiah. Look in verse 6. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Do you remember Jesus on the cross? Oh, if he really is the Son of God, let him come down. Prove it. Verse 16, for dogs encompass me. Now, in our day, dogs are not looked on so badly. In their day, they were. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones, not because he's starved, but because his flesh has been ripped open, by the way. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. I wonder if David knew just how much this psalm would apply to Messiah. And what's interesting is that David, even in the psalm, is ready to call out to God. You see the obvious parallel. He's on the cross, and yet he's ready to proclaim the Father to us. When he says those words, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, in Aramaic, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's not just crying out to God, begging for mercy. He's, he's quoting this psalm. But he's not just quoting the first verse. You see, what they'll often do, if you go to a Jewish Shabbat service today, they will sing the psalms. And sometimes they will sing the entire psalm, but sometimes they will only say the first line and then take a moment to meditate on the rest of that passage. He's calling the whole psalm to mind. And so that includes verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offsprings of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. Jesus isn't just calling out to God, why are you forsaking me? He's recognizing that God hasn't forsaken him. But he's also ready to proclaim the Father to us. You see, we're the brothers. The writer of Hebrews doesn't just quote from Psalm 22. He also quotes from Isaiah chapter 8, verse 17. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. In that day, Israel was opposing God. They were trusting in Syria. They were looking to resin and looking for help from a foreign king rather than from the king of kings. God would raise up judgment through the Assyrians, no less. 
That if you ever wonder why Jacob, uh, why Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh, that's why, because of how wicked and evil those people are toward Israel. He does not want to show them any kind of love whatsoever, because they're terrible and they deserve it. But God's going to use this people, this terrible Assyrian nation, to punish Syria and eventually his own people. God tells Isaiah, don't follow their lead. Don't do what they're doing. Don't trust in Syria. Don't fear what they fear. And Isaiah recognizes that only God is the one he could put his trust in. So that's why he says, I'll wait for the Lord. I'll hope in him. I'll trust in him. And then... The author of Hebrews just keeps going. He goes to the next verse. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. Isaiah recognizes his own children. Shear Jashub and Maher Shalal Hashbaz. How about those for kids' names? They are both signs from God. In fact, they were named because of the signs from God that they are because they were signs that God was going to be good according to his word. God had said what he was going to do, and he was going to make it happen. And those kids that Isaiah had were reminders of what God had promised to do and what he would do. And so Isaiah looks at his own kids, and he recognizes the promises of God. Not just because they're blessings of God, but they are, but because they remind him that God makes good on his word. And then we look to Jesus the fulfillment of God's word. We hear him in John chapter 17 praying, I've not lost a single one that you've given me. You see, God has given him trust over us. And because he's faithful, we know we can trust in God. He walks with us. He talks with us. He dwells among us. Excuse me. He's our companion. No one else can say that. Buddha doesn't say that. Muhammad doesn't say that. Science doesn't say that. False ideologies don't say that. All of them demand that you conform to what they want. None of them put on flesh and dwell among us. Only God does that through Jesus Christ. He's exalted because he suffered as one of us. Another way Christ's suffering exalts him, Christ's suffering exalts him as our defender. Not only does he stand with us, taking our flesh and blood as his own, he also defends us. The name Satan literally means accuser. It's like a court trial. God the judge sits behind the bench. Satan the accuser stands to accuse us of all of our sins. And I have to be honest with you, he's got an airtight case. He's exactly right. We're guilty. You don't lie in front of that judge. There's no perjury in that court. And we are guilty. We are condemned. Well, we would be if we didn't have a defender ourselves. We need a defender who can remove the guilt from us. We need a defender who can not only explain it away, but who can purge the sin from us. And that's Jesus Christ. Look at the second half of 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. We just talked about that, being our companion, that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. God's perfect plan of salvation includes Christ conquering death, but he does so by actually dying. He doesn't do so by by just abolishing it. 
He doesn't do so by stopping it dead in its tracks. He doesn't do so by hiding from death, cheating death. No, he, he dies. He attacks death from the inside. Death didn't know the Trojan horse that came to it on that cross. Not only does he conquer death, he conquers the one who holds death's power. That accuser that stands before God and demands that he exercise judgment on our sins, our defender stands up and says, I'll take that judgment. By dying, he takes the power out of that death. And death, death is quite a scary thing for us. Imagine how much more scary it is when you don't know what's on the other side of it. Some people will do anything and everything they can to avoid death. But Christ has taken the power away. And notice it talks about this kind of as though it's already happened. Through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. He's, we're kind of looking forward. To it. Might does not mean he has a chance. Cross your fingers and hope for the best. Might means here, uh, uh, this might means he will. But in order to do it, he has to go through this route. It's, it's, it's conditional on him taking the flesh and the blood and dying. And he's already done that. So now it's guaranteed. It's like when you uh, buy a product with a rebate on it and you fill out all the rebate forms and you send them in and you're waiting for the money to come back. You've done your part. Now it just takes time for them to finally get off the cash that you've already given them and to give it back to you, right? He doesn't win by avoiding death. He doesn't win by outsmarting death. He died, he was buried, and then he rose. We can already see the lesson taking shape, but there's a little bit more. Makes another point. Christ's suffering exalts him as our redeemer. So he's our companion, he's our defender, he's also our redeemer. That'd be one thing if Christ died and that was it. And even if he rose from the dead and he conquered death, that would be one thing. And that's a great thing, but it still wouldn't secure us. Jesus has to go one step more. He not only has to take away the power of death from him, he's got to now redeem us from that same power too. Look in verse 15. And deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. You know, we live in this fear of death, don't we? We kind of live in this place where death is always over our shoulder. Maybe you don't feel it. Maybe, you know, when I was young, I didn't feel it at all, ever. Death, that's, that's for old folks. As I'm getting older, I'm starting to realize, hey, you know, time's ticking. And I don't know how many ticks I got left. I'm not even 40, y'all. Okay? Some of y'all are older than 40. I won't specify how much older. You don't know how many ticks you got left. And so there's this idea in your head that, hey, one day you are going to die, right? And that fear, man, that fear sometimes to, sometimes it pushes people to do all kinds of things. If I could just have a little bit more time, please don't kill me. Please don't let me go. They, they talk... It, it, and they try to negotiate their way out or they even make dramatic decisions or drastic changes to their life to avoid death because that sting of death is so bad that they want to avoid it at all costs. 
And you know what Christ does? He comes along and he takes the stinger right off. Now, don't get me wrong. We may not want to die. Country singer sings, everybody want to go to heaven, but nobody want to go now. You may not be anxious. I understand. But we need not fear it either. Because we've been delivered from the fear of death. We're delivered from the slavery that that fear puts us in. That lifelong slavery. By the way, there's two types of slaves. There are some that owe a debt. And so they work enslaved until they pay that debt off. And then there are lifelong slaves. Slaves that owe way more than they could ever repay. Slaves that have been promised from maybe their birth or maybe a specific time that for the rest of their lives they have no hope. They can't earn their way out. They can't do enough work to muster the payment to buy themselves out. They are hopelessly enslaved for the rest of their lives. And Christ comes and says, I'm going to buy that one. And he does so with his blood paying with His blood, purchasing us from a lifelong slavery in fear of death. Christ redeems us from that. The word redeem even means pay for. You redeem a coupon. Christ redeems us. He doesn't do that for angels. He doesn't do that for angels. It's not for the angels. The angels had their time. God doesn't send a redeemer to ransom the demons from hell. Now, this offspring of Abraham here, it's not just Israel. It's not even just the sons of Ishmael either. He's not talking about the literal bloodline. As Paul said in Galatians chapter 3, verse 7, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. We are the offspring of Abraham. We who put faith in God and he redeems us. And his suffering to be our redeemer lifts him up. Lifts him up above the angels. And lifts us up above the angels too, doesn't it? And if we're lifted up, how much higher is he? One more thing. He's been hinting at it. This is kind of the coup de grace, if you will. This is the real point where all the lesson kind of comes together. We've, we've kind of hinted around it. We've beat around the bush, but we haven't hit it yet. Back in verse 10, he uses this language of salvation. And even a little bit the language of suffering, that perfect through suffering kind of hints at it. In verse 11, he says, he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified. In verse 14, he talks about, or excuse me, verse 15, he talks about delivering. All this language kind of takes us to a certain particular thing. It, 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 all of it points us toward the town of Jerusalem. And points us to that temple. And inside that temple, it even points us to that high priest. You know the one I'm talking about. The one that would wear the, the, the gems on his breastplate. That each represented a tribe of Israel. The one who would wear the band on his head that said, Kadosh Ladonai, holy to the Lord. The one who would once a year go into the Holy of Holies and present the sacrifice of a spotless lamb throwing the blood on the altar, proclaiming the name of the Lord, making atonement for the sins of the people. And then who, when he was done and had survived, would walk out and would stand with his arms stretched out over the people, would pronounce God's blessing and forgiveness over them. The author of Hebrews wants us to picture that in our minds. 
He wants us to see the expiation of sins that's made in that temple year after year after year. And he's going to tell us a little while later, that could never get rid of our sins. It could only postpone. It could only do for a little while until God could do his perfect plan who in Christ sacrificed himself the perfect sacrifice for our sins so that once and for all our sin would be dealt with. He's pointing us to a high priest that's going to point us to the perfect high priest, Jesus Christ himself. Christ's suffering makes him our perfect high priest. Not just a high priest that'll do. Not just a high priest for a little while. Not just a priest who happens to be doing pretty good things for God. A perfect high priest. Verse 17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So that, now you read so that, means there's a result. Him being made like us has a result. Look at it. He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. Now if you're going to be a high priest, you've got to do two things. You, you got to represent God. That means you have to be holy. You can't, you can't do whatever you want to do. You can't live like a hellion. You can't be guilty yourself. Because then you need a priest. If you're going to be a high priest, the kind of high priest that we need, you need to be perfect, sinless, pure. You also need to have a heart for the people, so that when they need help, you don't turn your nose up at them, look down on them, hate them. But you love them enough to do whatever you have to do to bring them right with God. If you are going to be a good high priest, you have to both represent God before men and represent men before God. And you've got to do them both well. Jesus does both. He is a merciful high priest. He has compassion for sinful people and seeks their redemption. So he is willing to give himself. He's willing to take on flesh and blood and sacrifice himself to make us right with God. And yet, he's also faithful. He stands before God pure and blameless. He speaks God's words. He doesn't beat around the bush, doesn't hide it from us, doesn't, doesn't ease it over to make us feel better. He's a merciful and faithful high priest. And that makes him perfect. They had a thing a while ago for teachers. They wanted teachers to be highly qualified. Jesus is the most highly qualified. He's the only one qualified because of his sufferings. Well, I'll let the author of Hebrews say it. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. You see, because Christ took on flesh and blood and became like us, our companion, and defends us and redeems us from our sin as our perfect high priest, he can help us when we need it. He's our companion. He's our defender. He's our redeemer. He's our perfect high priest. Pray with me. You know what, God? Your word says it all. Help us live like it. Help us trust in you. Our faithful and merciful, our perfect high priest. Whatever you want to do in us, you lead us and we'll follow. In Christ's name, 
Amen.